0: Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. What does it mean to be safe and secure? In business, it means having the peace of mind that your technical infrastructure is beyond the reach of cyber criminals intent on doing you harm. At Sunstate Tech, we deliver safe and secure to our customers every day. In today's tech-driven world, trouble is just a click away. Trust the IT experts at Sunstate to keep your business running smoothly. To learn more or take a free assessment on just how vulnerable your business may be, visit sunstatetech.com today. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. With Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Evergreen is calling.
1: Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop and happy you could join us. The cannabis industry has brought lucrative returns for the fortunate entrepreneurs who have had access and means to enter this competitive space. Unfortunately, not everyone has either one, much less both. Access has always been a challenge, even in states that have already legalized cannabis for adult use. Most states require licenses to operate dispensaries, manufacturing laboratories, and cultivation facilities. Applying for that license can be an expensive, laborious process, often requiring applicants to undergo background checks, navigate rigid regulatory requirements, and pay hefty non-refundable application fees. And then they wait. Qualification does not guarantee that an applicant will be granted a license, and the selection methods, which are highly competitive, vary by state. But what doesn't vary by state is the way the process has excluded some aspiring entrepreneurs who lack sufficient capital and disqualified others when a background check uncovers a felony marijuana offense. Federal legalization has potential to level the playing field and make it easier for those to compete for the coveted licenses. But In the meanwhile, some states have begun to write social equity provisions into their medical and adult use cannabis laws. Nonprofit organizations have also stepped up to provide resources, mentorship, capital sources, and legal support necessary to not only qualify for state licenses, but also to launch thriving cannabis enterprises. That's the topic of today's show and something our guest Samuel Richard happens to know a lot about. He's the executive director of the Arizona Dispensaries Association, which serves as the political and legal voice of Arizona's cannabis industry dedicated to advancing best practices through advocacy, education, and mentorship. Known for his expertise in complex government affairs, communications, and media, he's been dubbed one of the sharpest political minds in the state by Arizona Capital Times Breakout Awards. He was also previously recognized in Phoenix New Times Best of Phoenix as Best Lobbyist and by the Phoenix Business Journal as a member of the 2013 Class of 40 Under 40. In addition to his degree in nonprofit leadership and management from Arizona State University, he also holds certificates from both Valley Leadership and the Center for Progressive Leadership and is a fellow of the Flynn Brown Civic Leadership Academy. That's a lot. I knew I was coming to the right person about this, so thank you, Samuel. I've been looking forward to it.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you for the time.
1: My pleasure, and I'm happy you could make the time today. Before we delve delve into the social equity programs, tell me a little bit about some of the work that you're doing at Arizona Dispensaries Association, just in case people aren't really familiar with it. I know this is a, a relatively new position for you,
2: um, well, in cannabis terms, I've been here for about a decade, but it's been uh, just a touch over two years. I was lucky enough to join the team right at the beginning of the launch of the proposition that uh, uh, legalized and brought adult use transactions into the state of Arizona. So uh, the, the timing was uh, uh, definitely uh, something that that I was quite lucky to, to be a part of uh, changing the history here and ending prohibition in Arizona. So we're really excited about that.
1: And you were involved in the industry before being with the Dispensary Association. What sort of changes did you see in the industry at large? I mean, you know, it's kind of a transition to go from Arizona having nonprofit dispensaries under the medical law to now being able to transition into for-profit businesses under the adult use law. So... What were some of the biggest changes that you noticed?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think that um just in in general, what you see often is that uh, uh, politics is always the art of the possible. So the fact that you know we were really uh, constrained by the realities of of nonprofit uh, status and 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 some of the the kind of the the heavy focus on, on um, uh, medicinal and, and kind of patient-focused language, that was really because um, it, it was largely something that was, uh, um, you know, folks could go into it with a mindset that that the therapeutic and medicinal benefits of cannabis were something that was uh, more palatable by all. I think, in fact, at, at, at this stage, you see somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, of uh, two times more people that believe Bigfoot exists then that uh, that cannabis should be illegal for medicinal and therapeutic purposes. So I think that, that um, some of that focus on that side of the business, um, what was really kind of from a, that mindset or that type of philosophical angle. So, um, not trying to uh, be very obtuse in the answer of my question, but I'm just I'm just saying that that I think that for most folks, and this isn't just in the Arizona market, but across cannabis, um, you've seen that operation as a business, as that for-profit entity, but we've just been constrained by you know the the, the regulatory environment welcoming us with open arms, um, and we were lucky here in Arizona that we won. Uh, by a 20% margin, uh, 60 to 40 um, on election night back in 2020. And uh, what, what's also really impressive is that the 2 million people that voted yes on Prop 207 were the most number of people that have voted for anything in the state of Arizona ever. Um, uh, so cannabis is more popular than, than uh, the late Senator John McCain um, or any of the other revered uh, political figures or or uh, uh, popular ideas that have come to the ballot so we're we're pretty proud of that and we're looking forward to writing that energy on through um to uh, full implementation of our program
1: yeah, it's isn't that interesting how how widely acceptable it has become because I mean, we've tried this before. I believe in 2000 and was it 2016 where we tried to pass another adult use law
2: yep and it, and it came very close we lost by about two and a half percentage points um so to have that you know nearly nearly uh uh you know 23 25 swing almost in popular opinion just in one presidential cycle uh w- w- was pretty incredible but you know i think what what you saw is that we, we've been a medical state since uh, 2010 was when the voters said yes, and uh, in late 2012, the first dispensary in Arizona was opened. Uh, um, one of our longest-serving members, actually of the association, Arizona Organics, uh, in downtown Glendale, um, uh, uh, was the first dispensary to open their doors, um, and uh, that was quite exciting to see. So, but you so you had a lot of kind of social acceptance and and kind of that industry familiarity, right? You know where the neighborhood dispensary was. Um, But I think there was always this thought as well that it was for a certain group of people. Um, And we have about 300,000 qualified patients that are part of our medical program here. So that's really one of the big challenges that we're seeing in the early days of adult use, frankly, is that I have people even that are in my social circle come up to me and say, when are dispensaries going to be open for me to walk in the door? And I just kind of put my face in my palm (laughs) because like we've been open since January 22nd of this year. Um, but I think there's still this kind of uh, soft belief out there that it's still a, a medical only or at least medical heavy program. and um that that couldn't be further from the truth.
1: well, if you think about it, after the initial medical law passed, there was still a tremendous stigma around it, like people just being sort of scared to walk into a dispensary, even even if they had their medical license and they were fully legal to do it. There was still a little bit of trepidation. But not only that, there was still a lot of pushback from some very odd places. And I think a lot of it had to do with the money that had gone into campaigns. But when you look at people like Sheila Polk up in Yavapai County, I mean, she went out of her way to continue to demonize anyone who was a medical patient, Um, demonize cannabis altogether. I mean, she launched some vicious campaigns against the medical law, even after it passed. And there were still people languishing in jail who had been arrested, carrying their medicine around with them (laughs) in the car. They were languishing in jail, you know, waiting for appeal after appeal to be released just from her district alone. So have you seen any other lawmakers or elected officials or anyone in government still kind of pushing back on this?
2: You know, the, the, I think there's always going to be s- some of those remnants of the, the the failed drug war that that still kind of permeate throughout uh, uh, not just recent history, but current history and current events. But I think one, one thing that, you know, is, is uh, interesting to reflect on is just this rapid development of of the uh, growing acceptance and normalization of the industry. Uh, um, you know, I, we're 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 recording this in in the, the the middle of November and just on the heels of uh, Representative Nancy Mace introducing uh, a, a federal legalization and regulation of commerce bill around the idea of cannabis, which is impressive all on its own, but probably more impressive is the fact that uh, she is a freshman lawmaker from the the Republican Party. Um, And I think what what Representative Mace is showing is something that we've known within the industry for quite a long time, is that cannabis is not a partisan issue. It's something that transcends experience. I mean, this plant has been uh, an active part of our civilization for at least 30,000 years, um, uh, used therapeutically, recreationally, Um, uh, and, and, you know, in all expressions of the plant, and it's really only been recent history that, uh, it has been pushed out of, of regular society. Um, and I think that, that it's going to take a while until we get everybody kind of back on the same page with that. But I think the more folks kind of, you know, raise up their hand and say, you know, this is what a cannabis consumer looks like. This is what, you know, this is how I use it. I might not inhale it. But I absolutely rub it on my knee every night um, or, you know, I, I take I take a, a lozenge uh, to help uh, aid my sleep in the evening. Right. So I think that it's those stories and or, or maybe I should say the reverse, the lack of those stories that allow that space and that room for some of those prohibitionist ideas to take root. Um, but I think that the more that uh, we all as cannabis consumers can uh, kind of come out and say, you know, th- this is not a strange thing. Uh, you, you know, you, you know not just one, but likely many cannabis consumers in your uh, family and in your small social circles. And I think as that becomes more of a permeating thought, those prohibitionist ideas are, are no longer going to be politically palatable. Um, and, and we'll just see some of that naturally subside uh, to, to, the, to the ethers of uh, political history.
1: Yeah, I absolutely. And you were saying, you know, socially and recreationally, um, or medically and socially, but also practically. I mean, the cannabis plant has all of those applications in the hemp form, especially, everything from clothing to food supplement, pie filling, <laughs> textiles, everything. I mean, and I think that the industrial uses of the hemp plant, making that illegal started the whole cascade effect of the entire plant being made illegal, you know, basically to to eliminate competition for industrials, oil and, and trees for paper, etc. But yeah, so it's really interesting how that evolved. But even after hemp was legalized um, several years ago, you still had People in Idaho being arrested and you know incarcerated for drug trafficking because they were bringing huge bales of hemp across state lines. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It just it takes time. It it
2: it really does, and and I think you know um, I I don't want to be too cute here or anything, right? But I I think that um, that's one of the beautiful things about working with cannabis is you know it 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 does have a pretty consistent regenerative. Uh, uh, life cycle, where you know it 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 goes through different iterations, right? We've been actively uh, genetically modifying this plant for quite a long time, and I think one of the beautiful things about that um, is that you know you can you 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 can see the parallels and the metaphors of that, right? And you know it's going to take a while as we pheno hunt our way through. Um, accepted practices as both an industry and, you know, uh, a society scarred by decades of failed policy. Um, It's not, it's not something that we can heal overnight. Um, And, and, and I think that that's, you know, you find some interesting plays with the metaphors of the plant itself to help uh, think through all that journey that we're taking together.
1: Yeah. And I, I love the fact that it is opening up doors for more holistic approach to medicine and getting away from the opiates and getting away from some of the harsh uh, benzodiazepines, you know, especially in our elder population. And I think it's going to do so much to help curb the uh, epidemic of addiction that has, has emerged in the last couple of decades as a result. So... This is going to be, you know, it's, it, it's been such an interesting ride, and I've been fascinated just to watch the changes and all of that. But getting back to the dispensaries, I know that they have issued a number of new licenses under the adult use law, and they still have more to announce later. Actually, they're going to be selecting from, is it a lottery
2: Yeah, so there's a a couple of different ways to award licenses, Um, but uh, uh, historically, the way that uh, the Arizona system has worked is through lottery after a period of uh, kind of uh, um, vetting through an application. So uh, um, with the uh, initial medical licenses, of which there are 130, and now the 143 adult use licenses that are out there, those were all done uh, via a lottery system after uh, a, a kind of a, an application and vetting process. And then the same thing will happen with the pending 26 social equity licenses, but that application process is is much more rigorous. We're actually um, uh, have just passed the uh, uh, initial deadline for uh, uh, social equity potential social equity applicants to complete their training. There's some uh, mandatory videos that are required to to uh, uh, apply for these licenses, and then the application window is between December 1st and December 14th. Uh, so we'll start to see uh, some of the energy behind. Uh, the those applications to come in here shortly, but we'll you know the 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 at the end of the day is where I was going with that, is that once the those applications are vetted, uh, there will still be a lottery system. so the the actual process is open to a much smaller uh, uh, subset of individuals. It was previously open to uh, any individual twenty one or over uh that was eligible to uh, uh, gain credentialing in the industry um uh so you know like a, a fingerprint clearance card um but uh this program has that same requirement but also in addition some uh focused criteria to ensure that the licenses go to uh individuals that were uh likely harmed by the drug war
1: and not only likely harmed by the drug war but also sort of shut out of the initial process like you have a lot of people who had been incarcerated for cannabis related felonies who weren't even allowed to apply for a license in the past and yet they're the ones who probably know the most about the plant
2: (laughs) yes yep i think that that's a a really great point and that's really why that was a, a significant piece of the population that was centered in Proposition 207. So one uh, interesting kind of fact about Arizona law is we did not previously have an expungement provision um, for any offense, for any charge that is listed in our criminal code. Um, So Proposition 207 uh, not only uh, created a pathway for expungement for those affected uh, by harmful cannabis policy, um, uh, but also created uh, kind of an open door the expungement process generally in Arizona. So uh, it's really kind of uh, an exciting time in terms of a a criminal justice reform aspect here in Arizona, Um, and we're starting that journey with uh, the 187,000 charges that are uh, potentially expungible uh, through the provisions in Proposition 207. So we're really excited about um, that, you know, significant uh, first step in in the, the work that's needed to, to start to repair some of the ills of uh, these decades of failed policy.
1: And for those whose records do get expunged, and for those who maybe aren't as fortunate as those who may be selected out of this next lottery to actually enter legally into the cannabis business. Have they made any provisions? Do you think for reparations in general to help some of these people, either related to the industry or not?
2: Um, that's a good question. The, the The Department of Health Services, where the program is managed, absolutely uh, uh, would have that authority, uh, but that particular idea was not uh, necessarily fleshed out in in the initiative.
1: Yeah, that's just an interesting question. And and I realize that you probably aren't really that involved in that aspect of it. But it is an interesting question. It's something I'm going to stick a pin in for later. But um, Yeah, but, it's absolutely
2: um, an important question, but it's just not one that uh, I'm uh, very familiar with in, in, in terms of uh, what tools are available to address that.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting thought anyhow. So and then when it comes to these social equity licenses, or even just anybody who has already just entered into this business with a license, maybe if they don't have lots of funding behind them, or, you know, they're, they're setting up sort of a mom and pop shop, if you will, what are some of the financial considerations or restrictions or Challenges that some of these dispensary owners are facing when they first enter the business.
2: Yeah, well, that's a a, a really great question. Um, the uh, fact that that you know we we are what would uh, be popularly considered as a limited license state uh, m- means that you know the the actual license itself is is the most kind of it, um, expensive piece of the puzzle, so to speak. Um, uh, but in, in in terms of startup costs, you know you're you're looking at, you know, m- mostly where where the the industry is at. It's not Arizona's not an outlier in that standpoint. Um, uh, in 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 terms of you know where prices are at on the wholesale market or you know uh, uh, legal fees associated with zoning and planning work, uh, or you know the the uh, interior design that's specific to the cannabis community for building out a retail environment. So there are absolutely significant costs uh, to to starting a business in the cannabis world, but um there's no uh, like kind of Arizona specific or Arizona outliers in in terms of what to consider.
1: yeah, the, well, if there was a
2: specific I'm- angle there that I missed, let me know
1: <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I was really um interested in hearing is how what are some of the financial challenges? I mean, how much does it cost someone to actually get a license for the first time, both before and now?
2: Yeah, so that, that's a, a great question. So originally, the initial licenses uh, were an application fee um, of, of about $5,000. Um, uh, so for the new recent round for the adult youth licenses, of which there have been 143 awarded, um, uh, those licensing fees were $25,000. Um, the social equity licenses um, are $4,000 uh, for that application fee. So if you are um, in the position to have kind of won that lottery ball, um, then the only money that that would be required or the upfront capital to, to be awarded one of those licenses would be the application fee. So, in the licenses that have yet to be awarded in the social equity program, you're looking at about four thousand um, uh, dollars in 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 that application fee. Now, in terms on on kind of uh, recent uh, acquisitions and kind of the in, in that that um, very hot space across the country right now, as as the market continues to consolidate ahead of federal legalization, uh, we've had recent sales. Of licenses that range anywhere between about 15 or 17 million dollars, all the way up to uh, uh, 30 million dollars for each license, and a lot of that depends on um, you know the, the the foot traffic, you know uh, uh, the 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 sales that each store is doing, and and kind of how profitable the underlying businesses might be on that. So there's a, ver- a number of factors that go into that consideration, but that's the range. Uh, of of some recent transactions, anywhere between fifteen um, uh, ish million dollars to uh, 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 all the way up to thirty.
1: That just seems insane, but I understand it because it's a very competitive space. But are there any uh, restrictions when it comes to the social equity licenses? I mean, if if a social equity license is issued and and a person does not open a dispensary. Um, can they just turn around and sell it for millions of dollars?
2: Uh, the the easy answer is yes. Um, that's absolutely something that the uh, um, license winners or the awardees uh, have the authority to do. It becomes their asset is, uh, uh, immediately upon award. So they can choose whatever they would like to do with that, whether they want to operationalize it or, or you know, uh, kind of put the proverbial for sale sign out in front of it. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll, say two things about that. The first thing is, um, uh, there is an 18 month, uh, kind of expiration date. So you can't award be awarded the license and just sit on it. Um, it, it, the license becomes forfeited back to the state, um, uh, in the event that it's not operational within 18 months of award. Uh, the other thing that I would say. Or excuse me that i want to say um about that is that uh, part of the application process for the social equity uh license is that applicants have to sign an affidavit saying that they haven't entered into a pre-negotiated acquisition deal um and that was something that the department of health uh seemingly put in to make sure that there wasn't any of those like uh shadow buyers where you know the folks that weren't necessarily uh, the main intention of the program. You know the, those multi-state operators or the large operators uh, that the, they could come in and just kind of hide behind um, uh, someone in, in kind of a, a token capacity or whatnot. And I think that was a very smart provision to have been added uh, uh, to to that. So, yeah, but if if an award winner so chooses, they can turn around and uh, sell that uh, license for you know, 15 to $20 million, just for the, the, the ability to operate um, with that license. And, you know, that that's an incredible amount of money that I will likely never see in my lifetime. Uh, so that there's some, absolutely some generational wealth that can be created from the immediate sale of that asset and not just the, the operating and um, kind of uh, long-term benefit of owning and managing a license.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and also, if they don't open or if they just open a well, marginally usable establishment before selling a license, I mean, when those license uh, buyers, if they decide to sell their asset... Um, they're still restricted about where they can put it because aren't the licenses according to like in the county? I know that, for example, in the Arizona legislature, they had introduced uh, House Bill 2809, which puts some restrictions on where some of these establishments can be. And so if they sell the license, the, the license is really still connected to the county or to the um, municipality where it was issued is that correct
2: um so not necessarily there, there, so a couple things on that so first that that bill uh sponsored by um uh uh miss osborne joanne osborne the chair of the house health committee um uh was not successful um in in moving all the way through the process Um, So there was enough concern from some of her colleagues. So those ideas did not get um, uh, the requisite approval to to move forward to become uh, effective law. Um, So we we hope to work with Ms. Osborne to continue to um, uh, open her mind to uh, the incredible economic impact that the $1.5 billion industry of of cannabis here in Arizona can uh, continue to offer benefit. the taxpayers of the state by um, you know we're we're on pace to uh, record over 200 million dollars in tax revenue from cannabis sales uh, this year uh, straight to uh, the state's general fund and a variety of other programs that that benefit folks all across the state so just wanted to highlight that um, so while we're grateful to always have those conversations house bill 2809 uh, was not successful so um, a lot of those additional restrictions were not ever uh, put into place
1: That's actually very good news.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Uh, but we are still are heavily regulated from that zoning perspective. So um, any uh, license except for uh, just about a dozen, in fact, it's 13 licenses, um, those licenses are required to remain in the county that they were awarded to. But any other license is um, able to move uh, wherever they can across the state, uh, but the 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 big, huge asterisk on that is that most cities and counties have restricted zoning so much for cannabis operators that there is um, a, such a highly limited number of uh, possible real estate locations that um, the footprint that you see now is likely the footprint that there always will be in terms of uh, Arizona retail cannabis.
1: yeah, it's it's interesting you, in Phoenix itself, you can see, dispensaries in multiple places but then you get out into some of these rural areas where patients have a real disadvantage if they have to drive 30 miles just to get to a dispensary so because i think by county there's still um a certain amount right the a certain amount of uh establishments that can be open to the public in any given county in so any that, given that, county.
2: that, that- yeah i'm sorry i didn't mean to uh uh, cut off the end of your question there but the the um that was where these 13 so-called empty county licenses um came from so any county that had fewer than two dispensaries at the time that prop 207 passed um uh were the counties were required to award the the delta there so if it had zero it needed to award two licenses to operate within that county or if there was already one, they they had to award an, another license to operate there. But for the, uh, the the balance of those counties that had at least two operating dispensaries, there are no uh, requirements for any dispensaries to stay in there. So most of those have not uh, been operationalized yet. so we have we have 143 licenses that have been awarded. Um, across the state. But um, as of today, there are only 125 that are um, open and operating. So the the balance still is yet to open and it's all pending local zoning um, uh, uh, regulations, as well as any relationships uh, that, that, you know, the ownership has to make sure that they, you know, can operationalize with full inventory and a fully built out retail space as well.
1: And what are what are some of the restrictions in terms of the type of security and the tracking from seed to sale, uh, reporting? There were a lot of regulatory constraints, if you will, under the medical law. Security was a big issue. How much of that is still relevant for the adult use licenses?
2: Um, really all of it. Um, and and where, where there are some uh, nuances and differences... We're actually working hard to align the adult use program fully with the medical program in terms of an operational space, because so many of our operators um, have crossover um, in, in, in terms of the medical to adult use program. So, you know, um, uh, seed to sale is still an uh, absolutely a requirement in Arizona, no matter um, which side of the transaction you're on, either medical or adult use. Um, we also have all of the same security requirements in terms of uh, streaming video and archived video to be available, including um, any vehicle in which product is transported, either from uh, cultivation to retail, from processing to retail, um, or from uh, uh, retail to consumer in terms of medical delivery. So there's uh, um, significant amounts of of security and oversight and uh, regulatory controls on, on both the medical and adult use programs.
1: Right, so despite legalization for adult use, it's not like opening up a liquor store, in other words.
2: Actually, for, for the folks that were um, uh, operating as medical dispensaries, there was a requirement for co-location. Yeah. So uh, there are uh, currently at this stage of the market, uh, no medical only dispensaries. Every, any one of our 300,000 medical uh, patients still can uh, benefit from uh, a different product selection, as well as um, uh, uh, you know the, uh, the the lack of the excise tax that adult use customers are assessed. Um, uh, but there there are not separate locations or any segregation of uh, customer experience uh, for for the medical uh, and, and adult use programs.
1: Does that make it really difficult for the owners to track in terms of sales? Because the medical or the medical sales would still be under a non-profit tax base.
2: No. So, so the, the transition to for-profit w- w- uh, uh, is part of the overall program um and now as, as, as a part of this transition but i will say in terms of the segregation of the transactions that absolutely is a piece of this so we have very complicated and intricate reporting requirements uh, and audit uh, uh requirements from the department of revenue so every transaction is uh either assessed a, a medical program tax or an adult use program tax um and the sales are are tracked as well as the allotments on the medical side, so um, uh, for any adult now over twenty-one in Arizona, you can possess up to one ounce of cannabis, of which no more than five grams can be concentrated. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, offer medical patients uh, th- those uh, numbers are two and a half ounces, and there's no delineation for uh, concentrated cannabis. So. You know, that there there's those things that are different in the program. So there absolutely is, you know, segregated accounting and, and segregated transactions. I was more talking about the fact that um regardless of whether or not you're a qualified patient or an adult use consumer, um, you can be kind of mingling the retail floor together. There's no there's no separation of customer experience from that perspective.
1: Right. And then as in terms of like possession, it, there's no difference really from the medical law as well. Is that correct?
2: Yes, correct.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And I was particularly interested in the security. One of our clients, they're one of our biggest supporters and have been for a long time, is Sun State Technology Group. And they happen to do the entire security and IT networking set up for Copper State Farms. At the time that they started that, it was the largest in the state. And now it's like one of the largest in the country with multiple locations and the grow operations. And I mean, the security was just phenomenal what they had to do. And it, it's interesting to me that the security needs to be the same, which is a lot, I would think, for especially people entering the business for the first time and under these newer licenses. And there's a learning curve of what it is that they have to do. I mean, how how do they get trained in all of these restrictions or regulations? I mean, the training that you mentioned is really just training about who they are and how to apply, correct?
2: Yeah, that's exactly what that is. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you meant to throw me up a softball. <laughs> but you know, in in many ways, that that is exactly the role that we serve for our members. So we're we're lucky enough to represent through membership uh, about 110 of the 125 licenses that are open and operating, as well as a significant number, dozens and dozens of the independently operating. Uh, wholesale brands that um, uh, our qualified patients and adult use, adult use consumers are familiar with from just uh, shopping at their local dispensary. Um, so, a big function that we serve for the cannabis community is that uh, compliance and regulatory support. Um, we do, you know, a, a significant amount of work in in legislative and political action. We we were the the uh, kind of the, the the driving force in terms of uh, fundraising and operational support behind the campaign of Proposition 207, um, uh, but we also make sure that our operators um, continue to uh, excel and um, serve as exemplary role models in terms of regula- regulated cannabis operators. Uh, we know that uh, the voters have placed their trust in us uh, as as the stewards of, of the regulated cannabis industry so we want to make sure that uh, we, we return their trust with uh, a, a commitment to patient safety and uh, you know uh, uh, earning continual earning of the tru- of the uh, public's trust um, so that, that's what we do day in day out so like i said i don't know if you meant to give me a softball like that but um, that that's exactly the work that we do is make sure that we're there um, kind of as a go-between uh, in, in terms of the regulators and the, the policymakers that our members have to interact with uh, day in, day out, uh, across every level of government here in Arizona.
1: Well, it's a good service. Trade associations can either be pro-the entrepreneur or pro-the industry that benefits from these businesses being open. So it's nice to know that you do provide those services to the people who are just starting out. And is there is there a fee for joining the association?
2: There is, yes. Um, uh, and, and it's different depending on whether or not you um, are a licensed owner or um, one of those independently operating brands. And, and that information is available on our website at azdispensaries.org. Um, and you, uh, anybody can find us uh, on Dispensaries on Instagram and uh, we spend a fair bit of time there uh, uh, giving a, a little signal boost to all of the work that our members do across the state um, and, and talk about the great benefits of cannabis in your daily life as well as the, the, the benefits of the cannabis industry here in Arizona. That we are lucky to employ about 25,000 of your neighbors. Um, and we're on pace to contribute uh, right around $250 million in tax revenue this calendar year. So um, we're, we're grateful for the trust that Arizona's uh, voters put into us at the end of 2020, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing to serve them for both medicinal and uh, uh, adult use needs when it comes to cannabis.
1: Good to know, and I will put that information up on our website as well so that people can find you directly and is there anything else that you'd like to add as we wrap this up uh
2: no i just really am grateful for the time to uh speak with you and and uh, give your listeners a a little bit more of a line of sight into what we're up to here in arizona and um, i'm always available to uh, anybody my my contact information is on our website so i'm happy to share it here too if anybody wants to email me i'm just sam at azdispensaries.org and really appreciate the time with you today and Uh, I look forward to continuing to protect and advance the regulated cannabis ecosystem here in Arizona.
1: Oh, well, I certainly appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, so it is time to bring yet another episode to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guest, Samuel Richard, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing at Arizona Dispensaries Association, Please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com, click podcast to find today's episode, and there you will find a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech and Sunstate Technology Group. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And of course, it goes without saying how much we appreciate our programming directors at the networks who distribute our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned and make it a great day.
0: What does it mean to be safe and secure? In business, it means having the peace of mind that your technical infrastructure is beyond the reach of cyber criminals intent on doing you harm. At Sunstate Tech, we deliver safe and secure to our customers every day. In today's tech-driven world, trouble is just a click away. Trust the IT experts at Sunstate to keep your business running smoothly. To learn more or take a free assessment on just how vulnerable your business may be, visit sunstatetech.com today.